570 WTBN Pinellas Park. Online at letstalkfaith.com. A service of the Salem Media Group. Versions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. We search the New Testament, we see three essential principles about New Testament church leadership that emerge from its inspired pages. These are principles that every Christian and every church is obligated, as I said, by divine mandate to follow. And today on Verse by Verse, we'll take an in-depth look at one of those principles, a principle we discussed in our last broadcast. Welcome. It's great to have you along today as Pastor Steve Kreloff moves us through this study of the nature of the church. Our launch pad for this journey is found in Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, that's where we'll be turning in just a few moments. Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Later, at the end of our class, I'll let you know how to find Lakeside in case you're new to the area and looking for a home church. Today, we'll begin the fourth message in a 10-message series about the nature of the church. In this first part of the message, Pastor Steve will summarize for us some of the key points he has already made. It is a good idea from time to time to do a little review to help us absorb the material and keep everything in perspective and in order. It's sort of like a booster shot. Or, if you take notes, think of it as reviewing your notes. Perhaps you've heard about the man who, when asked about his church preference, said red brick. Well, something tells me he doesn't have a very accurate concept of the nature of the church. I'm afraid that most people do not get what the church is, including those who attend every time the doors open, even pastors. The church is a living organism, not a pretty pile of bricks. It's a complex organism that requires people with all sorts of abilities and spiritual gifts. Do you remember those headless carnival cardboard cutouts of weightlifters and beauty queens and you'd pose behind them and have your picture taken? They always look silly because the head isn't right for the body. So it is with the church. The church's head is the Lord Jesus Christ, but all too often we try to put somebody else in that spot. Here's Pastor Steve with more about elders, pastors, overseers, and a topic that's a lot more important than many people think, church government. Once again, let's open our Bibles to our study in Matthew chapter 16 as we continue studying the nature of the church. Matthew chapter 16. Once again, I read to you verses 18 and 19. I also say to you, Jesus said that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. As I said, we are continuing our study of this very unusual passage of Scripture this morning, and the reason that it is so unusual, folks, is because it is in this particular passage of Scripture that Jesus first introduced to his disciples the concept of the church. See, to the best of our knowledge, prior to this announcement about the church here in Matthew Matthew 16, our Lord's disciples had never heard him mention the word church before, and if he did, it was certainly not in a religious sense. 
And the reason I say that is because, as we've already noted in a prior message, although these men were aware that the Greek word for church is ekklesia, they may have spoken uh, Hebrew or Aramaic, but they certainly knew the Greek language because they wrote the New Testament in the Greek language. So they knew that the word, the Greek word for church, ekklesia, meant a called out assembly of people. It was commonly used only in a secular context, such as an assembly of people who had gathered for perhaps a political uh, meeting or uh, to deal with the social issues of the day or civic concerns. But with this statement about the church made by Jesus here in Matthew 16, our Lord was using the term church in a far different manner. He was telling his disciples about a people named the church who would be called out of this world to become his people and his followers. You see, up to this point in the lives of these disciples of our Lord, these Jewish disciples of Christ, when they thought about the people of God, they only had one thing in mind, and that was the nation of Israel. To them, the people of God at that point only were the sheep, of the house of Israel. But now Jesus was telling them that he was going to soon start building a new religious community of people who would all be united by common faith in him. And what would they believe? They would believe essentially center their faith around Peter's confession, the contents of Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, in the passage before us, we see that Jesus not only introduced the concept of the church as a community of those who would believe in him. But notice that he went on to explain something of the nature of the church in terms of identifying several of its unique features and attributes. And that's, that's what we've been focusing on these last few weeks as we've been examining several key truths that Jesus gave about the nature of the church. And I have purposefully been taking some time to go through these key church truths because it is the knowledge of these specific truths about the church that will not only keep us from error, but will help us to understand what we are as a church body, how we are to function. As I mentioned just a moment ago, it'll also keep us from error. That's very important to understand. It'll it'll protect us from, from embracing an unbiblical approach to church life and ministry, which is what many churches do because they never examine the nature of the church. They never delve into the New Testament to see what are we, how are we to function, And without a biblical approach to the church, Christians become very vulnerable to following new trends and fads that that come on the evangelical scene. In fact, in our membership class today, somebody asked me a question. Are are we going to stay on the path we are? Are we going to go into a seeker-sensitive mode and and other modes? No, we're going to continue on the path of what the New Testament teaches. Listen, trust me, the seeker-sensitive movement, which says we'll cater to your flesh, whatever you want, you can have. We're just like a restaurant. You order it, we'll serve it. That movement, along with the emerging church movement, which essentially says that there is no absolute truth, just believe whatever you want to believe. I mean, that's what churches are being taught. That's what they are teaching. Listen, those movements will eventually pass away, and they will give way to other 
unbiblical approaches to church life. They'll just come along and take their place. But if we understand and if we receive these key truths that Jesus revealed about the church later developed in the New Testament, you're going to protect yourself. And not only yourself, you're going to protect your family. You're going to protect your your children from being susceptible and vulnerable to new approaches to church life that that promise excitement and and relevancy and a thrill every Sunday, but are contrary to Christ's teachings about the church. Now, as we've already seen, the first key truth that Jesus gave about the church was that the church would be built upon a solid foundation of rock. He said that in verse 18, I also say to you, you're Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church. In this statement, Jesus said that the church would be built upon something solid, a rock, meaning that it would be built upon a firm foundation so that it would be able to withstand all of the adverse conditions it will face. And the solid rock upon which Jesus said he would build the church was Peter. Peter, who was the most prominent of all the apostles, and gospel preachers in the foundational stages of the church. Jesus chose Peter, whose name, as we've already seen, means rock, to be the human instrument to build his church upon. But understand this, only in the sense that the first entrance into the church would be those who who would be converted under Peter's bold and courageous preaching. The Lord certainly wasn't exalting him to be the Pope. He simply was saying that, Peter, you're the one who will be bold in proclaiming the gospel like nobody else, and the first entrance into the church will be those who will respond to your rock-like, solid preaching about me. And, And that's what the book of Acts teaches us. Thousands of people did initially come to faith in Christ through the ministry of Peter. So the solid foundation upon which the church is built is really the Word of God. The Word of God, that message of the gospel that initially came from Peter's preaching, but today stands as the inspired, God-breathed writings of the New Testament. And every new believer, and this is the point, every new believer who enters the church as the household and family of God enters by way of embracing these precious gospel truths about the person and work of Christ. There is no other way to enter into the church, the church meaning the household of God, the family of God. So the first key truth that Jesus revealed about the nature of the church is that it would be built upon the solid foundation of Peter and his preaching of the gospel. Second key truth that Jesus gave about the nature of the church is that the church would be, would be under his sovereign headship. He's the Lord of the church. Now, even though Jesus said that that Peter would play an important role in the founding of the church, the Lord made it very clear that he, and not Peter, nor any other apostle, was the one responsible for the building of the church. Notice that he said, I will build my church. Now, in making this statement that he would be the one building this new community of believers, we actually can see two distinct aspects of Christ's sovereign headship at work in the church. First, notice that in stating that he would be the one building his church, we see our Lord emphasizing the fact that the church is built only, folks, by his sovereign work of grace in the hearts of individuals as he brings them to faith in himself. Now, if we're, if we're really going to understand what Jesus meant about building the church, then we need to remind ourselves 
that the church is not a religious organization. It's not an institution. It's not a physical building. The church as defined by the New Testament is always people. Always people who have come to Christ for salvation. Paul says that in 1 Timothy 3.15, he specifically calls the church the household of God. He says, Timothy, while I'm away and you're in charge as my representative, I want you to know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God, meaning the family of God, the family of believers. These are the individuals who come to Christ broken and contrite over their sin, and in repentance and faith, they receive him as their Savior and Lord. Question is, how did they ever come to him in the first place? When as hostile sinners, they were always opposed to God and his word. And the answer is they came only because they were sovereignly drawn to Christ. They came because in eternity past, God the Father chose them to salvation. We've seen that in Ephesians chapter 1. And then, having elected them to salvation in eternity past, at a certain point in time, the Lord sovereignly opened their hearts to the gospel. And in the words of that great hymn by Charles Wesley, End Can It Be? He said, My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's exactly what happens to us at salvation. God sovereignly intervenes in our lives. I don't understand it. It's mysterious. It's miraculous. But then he sets us free from the bondage of our sin, and he moves us to respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. And so when Jesus said, I will build my church, he was declaring that he was the one, and he's the only one who would bring about the conversion of his people. So folks, we need to make sure that we don't steal the glory from him, either by trying to to take credit as great soul winners in personal evangelism, as if by our ability to witness we can win anybody to Christ. We're not soul winners, he is. Or by the silly notion, which many hold to, but I still say it's silly because it doesn't even make sense and it's not biblical, but the silly notion that God chose us only, as some say, because He looked down the corridors of time, and he saw that we would choose him. So based on that, he chose us. You know what? That doesn't even make sense. That doesn't even make sense. And that view certainly doesn't give him glory. It's it's unbiblical. It doesn't give him glory. It takes glory away from him, and it gives it to us as those who were astute enough to figure out that we needed Christ. Listen, I understand that some of you may not yet grasp this grand biblical truth of God's sovereignty in election. I understand that, but don't be so naive as to think that you would have come to Christ for salvation without his sovereign intervention and drawing of you. You wouldn't. How do we know that? Because Jesus said, amongst many other passages of Scripture, John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, that's an emphatic, dogmatic statement. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, because before conversion, our hearts were so evil and so bent towards sin and self that none of us were either capable or even interested in following Christ until he changed our hearts and brought us, and brought us to himself. So, let's not take glory, any glory, away from him 
We don't build his church. He does. And he does it by a sovereign work of grace in the lives of the elect. But there is a second aspect of Christ's sovereignty that is included in our Lord's statement that he would build the church. Notice that Jesus made, made it a point to declare that the church belonged exclusively to him. He referred to the church as my church, not the church, but my church. He said, I will build my church. So not only is he responsible for sovereignly bringing lost sinners to himself to form the church, but those who come to him, he tells us, come under his sovereign lordship and headship. They belong to him. They are mine, he says. We come as his willing servants who place ourselves in submission to his authority and therefore are committed to following his word. So we understand that by this statement that Jesus is the sovereign head of the church. But the question that I posed last time that we studied this passage raised, I think, a very critical issue and one that has to be addressed if we're to understand how Christ wants his church to function. And the question that I raised was this, how does Jesus rule over his church? It's one thing to say he's Lord of his church, but how does he rule over it in practical terms? After all, we know from scripture that the Lord is presently in glory. We're told he's at the right hand of God the Father. So how does he lead us? How does he govern us? How does he reign over his church here on earth when when he's not physically present? And the answer, very simply, according to the New Testament, is that Christ has divided his entire church, the body of believers, often called the universal church, meaning everyone who believes in him. He's divided it into numerous local churches that meet in various places all over the world. And the way that he rules these local churches is by raising up godly men called either elders, pastors, overseers, they're all the same, to lead each of these individual churches. And the responsibility of these church leaders is to direct and guide the people of God into following Christ as their sovereign head. How? By obeying his word. Now, according to the New Testament, it's through a a plurality of godly men called elders then that Christ has chosen to rule and reign over his church. So we need to understand that church government, folks, note this well, church government is not a minor issue. It's not a minor issue that should be left up to each congregation to just figure out and decide how they want to rule themselves. It is a biblical mandate, not a minor issue. As we search the New Testament, we see three essential principles about New Testament church leadership that emerge from its inspired pages. These are principles that every Christian and every church is obligated, as I said, by divine mandate to follow. Listen, regardless of the culture, regardless of the time in history where the church exists, these are biblical principles that are non-negotiable. And I say that because every once in a while, I hear someone say, you know, that I, I see it in the early church. Yes, they had elders. Yes, they had plurality. But it won't work in our culture. It, it's not going to work in the United States. So don't even bother. Listen, that's nonsense. There's no, nothing in Scripture that, that indicates this was culturally related to the times and the society they lived in. This is a biblical mandate. And you find, by the way, on the mission field, 
that uh, most missionaries in church planting would follow this pattern of a plurality of elders. Now, in our, in our last study, we looked at the first of these essential truths about church leadership. I said there were three of them. We looked at the first one. It's this. In the days of the New Testament, every local church was ruled by a plurality of men who shared the responsibility for leading the church. You see, the New Testament never speaks, never, of a church planted by either an apostle or someone close to an apostle who had the sole authority to rule over all the other elders and the entire church. That was just unheard of. It it didn't happen. And the reason for this is that Jesus did not build his church to be run by a single individual with a magnetic personality that could attract and hold great crowds of people by his charisma and oratory speaking ability. That kind of a messianic type leader, listen, is more characteristic of a cult than the church that Christ built. Every cult, one of the marks of a cult, and that's why I say every cult, has some type of a messianic leader who is controlling. That's not the way Jesus built his church. Nor do we read of any church in the days of the New Testament that was governed by an entire congregation because the Lord didn't create his church to function as a democracy. It may work for our government, and we're more of a republic than a democracy, but that's not the way the church was built. He designed his church to be ruled by a team of pastors who would love and minister to the congregation, not as their dictators, not as their tyrants, but as their servants. And that's the obvious pattern we see throughout the New Testament. As we saw just a few weeks ago, I I gave you numerous passages of Scripture, not one or two, but many, to show you that the pattern in the New Testament is a plurality or numerous elders leading the church. Now, before we leave this truth about the church being ruled through a plurality of elders, I want to address an important issue that I don't think I've ever really addressed at Lakeside. Well, I did it in the early service, but... Prior to that, I don't think I've ever done this. And so now that I really have your attention, I I want to address this so there's no misunderstanding about this. Because at some point, some perceptive person at Lakeside is going to wonder then why I am in the pulpit each week if the New Testament teaches a plurality of elders. In other words, they may put two and two together and come and say to me, listen, Steve, if the New Testament teaches that all elders are equal in authority with no one elder dominating the others, then what are you doing in the pulpit each Sunday? Shouldn't a true plurality of elders have a shared pulpit with each elder having the opportunity to preach on a regular basis? Well, I'm glad this came up so I can address this. I wish we could go on right now to hear the answer to the question of why, if the Bible teaches a plurality of elders, we generally only see one man doing the preaching. But we don't have enough time left today to get into that, so I hope you can join us for the next Verse by Verse. Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. He's a graduate of Moody Bible Institute and the Tampa Bay Theological Seminary, which is now part of Dallas Theological Seminary. He has written for several magazines and has authored two books, God's Plan for Israel, a study of Romans 9 through 11, and Expository Preaching and Teaching. You can find out more about Pastor Kreloff at our website, versebyverseradio.org. While you're there, check out our message archives. We have hundreds of previous broadcasts there, and we hope you'll take advantage of that free resource. That's versebyverseradio.org. 
I mentioned that Pastor Steve serves at Lakeside Community Chapel. If you ever want to come for a visit, or if you're needing a Bible-teaching church that you can call your home, Pastor Steve and everyone else at Lakeside would love to meet you. Lakeside is located at 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater, Florida. They have a wealth of information, including a map, at www.lakesidechapel.com. This is Jerry Peterson. It is good to have elders who can teach. And it's good to have men who can fill in for the pastor when the pastor is ill or vacationing. Those are important bases to have covered. But there are other things elders do that are just as important. In the first place, if every elder was a preacher, things would get a little confusing, wouldn't they? And another thing, what about the other gifts and skills needed in church leadership? It takes more than preaching to make a healthy church. As the Apostle Paul said at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? And now, we won't get into the specifics of what's entailed in those various roles Paul listed, but I think you get the idea. The body. 